obedience. And we pray that it will make us prepared for the week that faces us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just curious, if the Memorial Day picnic gets rained out, who will decide it's rained out and how will I find out? It's supposed to be beautiful tomorrow. We have a shelter. All right, all right, all right. Okay. Well, I'd ask you to open your Bibles up to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And let me say as you're turning that it is, uh, it is a great encouragement to me to have our musicians uh, not just leading us well, but leading us in the direction of our study of the Word so well. And uh, I often think as I preach that preaching is, uh, preaching is quite humiliating because you have to go for it in public. And I, 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 I'll always remember with affection when we had the groundbreaking, which wasn't a groundbreaking apparently, um, down at the goat farm. I absolutely loved Brandon because he went for it. And that really is a good analogy for preaching where he put the shovel in the ground, he jumped, and he went tumbling into the weeds. You know, But the ground was broken. Is Brandon here? I don't think he is, is he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, stand up, Brandon. There he is. And that will be one of the joyful moments in my entire pastorate, because that is Brandon. And I love him for it. Absolutely abandoned himself to the, to the moment and to the job. And that's what we're supposed to do, is we love Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I, I appreciate very much the musicians. Musicians should make fools of themselves in the leadership of God's worship, taking David as their model. And uh, it helps me to preach so much, so thank you. Let's read the Word of God this week. We turn to our 18th in a series of sermons on the New Testament book of Galatians. We're going to turn to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5 this morning. And you know what I'm going to say, which is this is the Word of God, and it is what? Eternally true. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of the Lord. Now first, we're going to look at Paul's tone. And you can imagine that I would not neglect that. Uh, it, it, there is a certain tone. Have you ever had your wife say to you, I don't like your tone? Well, Paul has a tone here. We're going to look at his tone as he deals with the Galatians. Second, 
We're going to look at the basis or the ground or the theme of Paul's argument. And third, we're going to look at the occasion of Paul's argument and see what encouragement we may receive from that occasion. So the tone of his argument, the basis or ground of his argument, and the occasion of his argument. Now first, what tone is Paul using here in his letter to the Galatians? Well, look at the text. He calls them foolish. He asks whether they have been what? Bewitched. Which is to say, have you been put under a curse of an evil eye? Now it's very interesting that when I read this text and came across that, it just rolled off my back. I didn't take it to heart. I didn't think anything of it. It just seemed like a little bit of hyperbole, exaggeration. The Apostle Paul's whipping them, and he decides to throw in bewitched. And then I jumped out of my own postmodern, sophisticated, uh, you know, scientific, uh, very smart culture into... Uh, what we look back on as the stupid and uneducated and unscientific time of the Reformation. And there I ran into this long, intense section of Martin Luther talking about the nature of demonic influence and witchcraft. And then I immediately thought how that would be taught in Christian colleges today. That back in the Middle Ages... There were many, many, many people who were killed for witchcraft. And doesn't that show how uh, women-hating the Middle Ages was? And then I thought, well, isn't demonic possession an equal opportunity employer? And isn't witchcraft, by definition, female? So what about all those who... Uh, are demon-possessed or who are under the influence of evil spirits in what they do. And without getting more specific, I I could read to you all the different people during the, the time of Luther, who Luther says are under the power of evil spirits, not saying that therefore they are unbelievers, but rather pointing to the effects of demons on the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, if you know Luther, you know that he said that the Pope and all those under the Pope at that time were under the influence of demonic spirits. Now, think about this and think how we approach the text and how Luther approached the text and then ask yourself, who is right? Who is more in line with what Paul is saying about the Galatians in asking the question, are you bewitched? Are we, or is Martin Luther? And of course, you know, I could go back through history and show you again and again and again and again that those who study Scripture will see all of Scripture teaching that we, in fact, do live in the presence of demonic powers. The demonic powers are real. And even if we forsake history, we say, well, forget the previous 2,000 years, forget Jesus casting evil spirits out, forget the Old Testament, forget all that. We live today, and thank God we don't have to live under that bondage because we know it was what? Um, You know, we know it's epilepsy, all right? Just to take one example. Then let me ask you, if we forget all of history and we go around the world, how do other Christians from other cultures view these texts? Do they view them 
in, in the sophisticated, bright, smart, scientific way we look at them. No, they don't. Uh, on my blog this last week, I was writing about the the huge market in uh, in uh, uh, human organs that has exploded all over the world, and some nuns and a Lutheran missionary in Mozambique who have discovered uh, many bodies of little children that have been kidnapped and murdered and the organs ripped out of their bodies and put on planes and taken to places where doctors will use them. And I was talking about the absence of any concern about this on the part of Christians in America or even our government largely, although our government is concerned somewhat. Uh, If you go there, you'll see that our... uh, that our State Department has actually issued statements about this with regard to China. Well, one of our missionaries, David Wegner, who lives in Zambia, wrote a comment saying that actually there is another reason that many bodies are found without organs. Uh, Particularly dead bodies are robbed of organs, and that is uh, the practice of witchcraft and the occult and the fact that these organs are used in the rituals uh, surrounding occult worship. So come back now to the text where it says, are you bewitched? And ask yourself, is the Apostle Paul just exaggerating or is he actually asking, have you come under the influence of demons? You see, we're so sophisticated, we think, and we live in our brains and and we and, and we we, we satisfy the lusts of our bodies, but we don't think our bodies are, are much else. And we don't take the spiritual word, world seriously at all. We somehow think that Jesus cast out demons, but thank God, God has taken demons away from America. All right? And yet, we do quote to one another that text in the New Testament, which is one of the favorites of Christians, which is what? We wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers. And as we quote that to one another, we quote it in a way that says to one another, well, you know, it is intense and it is hard and buck up because the battle's in front of us, you know. But then stop and think about it again. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And what we're confessing when we say that verse is that we do believe in demons We do believe in evil spirits. We do believe in Satan. We do believe that both men and women are equally employed in working the works of the evil one. And that those works are mysterious, hidden, secret. Uh, That they're not works that we can simply say, well, look, over there, there it is. Or over there, there it is. The Apostle Paul isn't doing that. The Apostle Paul is saying, are you... Do you? Have you been bewitched? Um, He doesn't answer it, but clearly it's a possibility. And we need to repent of our postmodern sophistication, which really isn't sophistication at all, but it's stupidity, that causes us to deny the existence of the supernatural in this life. All right? Uh, We need to not just pass over so lightly texts like this in the Bible, but realize that... Now, you know, sometimes I'm sure you, like I, have been flipping through the television set and you've come across a picture, a movie, of the Rolling Stones in concert. Now, just let me ask you, 
What do you think you're watching? I mean, think about that. Think about it. What do you think you're watching? Has it ever occurred to you that much of the power behind rock arenas is demonic? I'm personally convinced it is. Uh, every single time I see a rock and roll concert in those large venues where the lead guitar is just ripping through the bodies of the people present, I always think that at a minimum it's idolatry. And that's just the start. Now why? Because it's rock music, the genre? No, I don't believe a lead guitar is bad. As a matter of fact, a few seconds ago I was wishing that somebody would... uh, Cut into a rift there. (laughs) So it's not that the guitar or the organ, when it peels, are intrinsically evil. But we know that when we're dealing with rock music, that many, many people have completely subjected themselves to demon possession, right? I mean, okay, you know, idolatry, sexual immorality, and under the influence of a foreign substance. Now, my point is not to attack rock music. I could go on in many different areas, but personally, I should say, as I've said to my congregation before, I myself am convinced that through my participation in those things when I was young, I did come under the influence of evil spirits, and I I worshipped among Christians who believed in the power of prayer and who were used by the Holy Spirit to cast them out of me. All right? I take this seriously. This is why in our home, uh, I do not want my children listening to that stuff. Um, Now, you're going to have all kinds of questions in your minds. What am I talking about stuff? Well, I think you should be able to go through your CD collection and, and immediately recognize what things are completely beyond the bounds of what you ought to be listening to. And those things ought not to be sold down on Kirkwood, but ought to be broken and thrown in the trash. And yes, I've done that. And there are other things that are questionable, and there are some things that are fine. And your, your decision of where those fine things are will be very different from mine. All right, And I'm not going to make the decision for you. But boy, you better take seriously the, the influence of the evil one. In every area of your life, in particular when you suck in culture, what kind of movies do you watch? When you go into a a video store and you see cover after cover filled with blood and and fangs, do you think you're just dealing with a joke? Has it ever occurred to you that this is an instrument of demon possession or of demonic influence or of witchcraft? If the feminists believe in witchcraft, shouldn't we? All right, now I've created more questions than I've answered, right? (laughs) But go home and talk about it. If Jesus cast out demons, if Paul says, are you demon-possessed, are you bewitched, have you come under the evil influence of the evil eye, then this is a category of thought that we should have as Christians. We should take it seriously, and we should ask one another the question, is there something in your home that needs to be cast out because it's an instrument of the evil one to influence you in a wicked way? Okay. Now, this is just the first part of the tone. Paul does not hesitate to ask them whether it is demonic influence 
Now think about that. Think of the Apostle Paul standing here in front of our congregation saying, have you people come under the influence of, of demons? And I don't think we'd take kindly to that, would we? Well, no. We worship Jesus Christ. This building is dedicated to Jesus Christ. We're not the, under the influence of demons. Nevertheless, he asks the question, and asking it sets part of the tone, doesn't it? Now, what else is the tone? He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. And all of us should realize this is the equivalent of our answer me one question and then I'll shut up. And we know that's intense, you know. Just, just, just answer one question and then I'll shut up. All right, it's intense. And then, instead of telling them that they're foolish, what does he say? He asks them, what is the extent of their foolishness? He says, are you so foolish? So this is the tone of the Apostle Paul's argument. Now, there are some husbands or wives who, if this sort of thing kept up, might sue for divorce on the basis of psychological abuse. You wouldn't believe the things she says to me. I don't want to trivialize the suffering of many wives and husbands at not the hands, but rather the mouths of their spouses. But let's be honest and admit that we don't expect this sort of treatment from our pastor, do we? If it occurred today, it might well end up as an example, a negative example, in a book with a title like Churches That Abuse or Pastors That Abuse. And so we ought to ask the question, was Paul lashing out in anger and has the argument changed from building up to tearing down? Well, no. The Apostle Paul is doing what every godly authority will do at times. He is disciplining his subordinates with his tongue causing them pain in order to heal them. In other words, the error that they fell into was so serious that Paul was compelled to use a drastic remedy, much like a doctor today will use chemotherapy in a situation of cancer. Okay? And there are many precedents for such language in Scripture. Now, I know at this point it's very difficult for some of you who live with a wife or a husband who never shuts their mouth. Or it's difficult uh, for children whose father, as I did yesterday with Taylor, berated him, uh, just saying, Taylor, I'm not, do, 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 do. you, do, 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 do. you know, to think, okay, that's sin, but is there a proper place for having the tone of the Apostle Paul? Now, we'll come back and talk about the sin in a second, but first, the positive aspect of it. All right? Many, many precedents in Scripture exist for this kind of tone. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, please, the fifth chapter. And you know, you could turn to almost any five or ten pages in the Old Testament and immediately find a section in those pages that, that is similar to this. In Jeremiah 5, we read this, beginning with verse 21. And, and listen, this is from God. This is God speaking to his people, okay? God is a good, he is the good. He is the definition of the good father. And here's what he says to his people. He says, now hear this, O foolish 
and senseless people. Who have eyes but do not see? Who have ears but do not hear? Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you, for wicked men are found among you. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of beards, birds. <laughs> Excuse me. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Remember this with these organs being taken out of little children who are murdered for them. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? This is God. Now, listen to this. This is a chapter earlier, verse 22 of chapter 4. God says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are what? They're stupid children and have no understanding. They're shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. Okay, this is God. God speaks to us this way all the time in Scripture. Just constantly. Why? Because he's a bad father? <laughs> no, because he's a good father. I love God for these words to me. I love these words to me. My heart beats faster as I recognize a good father speaking to me. And that's how all the righteous respond to God rebuking them in this way. Well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus bring the warm and fuzzies to the Godhead? Well, look at Matthew 23. You all know I have to go there for this, right? Where else would I go? I'll just read a couple of verses, beginning with verse 25 of Matthew 23. Jesus says to the religious leaders of his time, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And if you think about this, the name is nothing. The accusation is a lot worse than the name. I'd rather be called a hypocrite than to have somebody say that I clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside I'm full of robbery and self-indulgence. That, that puts too fine a point on it, doesn't it? And then you blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, I don't mind the name as much as... For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
This is Jesus. Now you can say, well, that's Jesus speaking to unsaved people, hypocrites who are responsible for spiritual leadership, and so he has to be particularly harsh there. Well, how did Jesus speak to his disciples? Jesus was rebuking the disciples all the time. If not explicitly, he was telling stories that were shameful. And I'm just going to pick one out of a hat, but Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. You know, we, we have that picture in our minds of the road to Emmaus, that beautiful painting where these men are walking under this huge canopy of gorgeous trees. You know that picture? Well, here's what was being said in that beautiful picture. Jesus, after listening to them mourning over the loss of their master, Jesus, Jesus said to them, verse 25 of Luke 24, he said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. This is how Jesus deals with them after the resurrection. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. We hear this so often that it just... Again, it just goes right over us. It washes over us without having any effect. Oh, slow of heart, oh foolish men, slow of heart to believe. Oh, foolish men, slow of heart. You know. But put yourself in their shoes. You've been mourning over the absence of Jesus, over his death. Yes, some rumor of resurrection. And then the man with you says, Oh, foolish men. And you go, what? and slow of heart to believe. And you go, what? And then he says, in all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, foolish men, slow of heart to believe. But then he accuses them of not being students of the Torah. (laughs) And how do good Jews take that? It'd be like going to the Bible Memory Association and saying that none of the verses have ever meant anything to you 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 as you memorize them. So this is Jesus. Well, what about the rest of the New Testament? Pastors are actually explicitly commanded to follow these patterns in their instruction and preaching. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5.20, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, he says, those who continue in sin, what? Rebuke. In the presence of all. Now, the rebuke is harsh enough, but in the presence of all? I mean, when have you ever seen this done? Have any of you ever seen an elder or a pastor rebuked in public in a congregational meeting? I mean, I have, so I know some of you have, but I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you have ever seen a pastor or an elder publicly rebuked in a congregational meeting? One, two, three. You have? Four. Well, apparently it was needed back at the time of Paul, but it's not needed in the church today. Now, do you remember, without looking at the text, why the Apostle Paul said they ordered to do that? Do you remember why? This is your part of the verse, those of you that are not elders or pastors. Do you remember why? It says, rebuke in the presence of all, what? so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. In other words, when pastors and elders are rebuked in front of the flock, the entire flock is warned to avoid sinning. So in other words, the good of the flock is at stake in our obedience to this command. Those who continue in sin 
rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And then probably the text that you know best, where we are commanded as spiritual leaders to give ourselves to the kind of tone that Paul has here, is in 2 Timothy 4, where we read Paul writing to the young pastor Timothy, saying this, I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. In other words, a pretty heavy-duty charge, isn't it? Keeping in mind that God is the great judge, and that he is present, and the day will come when you will give an answer for your actions, young pastor. What? What's the command? He says, preach the word be ready in season and out of season. You ever ask yourself the question, what's out of season with deer hunting? What are the consequences? Well, what's out of season for preaching the word? I mean, think, what is out of season for preaching the word? How could you preach the word out of season? Some things in Scripture you should meditate on. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, and then what? Reprove rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And I always remember this because I remember that two out of the three words are not entirely positive. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. As a matter of fact, the third one, when some people are doing it, isn't entirely positive either. (laughs) Sometimes you shouldn't look at people as you preach. Um, But I'll get real specific. I have a dear brother in this church who has spent now 12 years exhorting me. And often I leave with my hide red. And that's his exhortation. That's not his reproving and rebuking. And I imagine you can think this through yourself. You think sometimes when your mother exhorts you, that exhortation does feel like a bit of a whipping, doesn't it? And she hasn't even gone into her reproving and her rebuking. (laughs) Okay? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, what? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So the tone of the Apostle Paul's argument is harsh, but it is lovingly harsh. There's no question he loves them. It is the tone of every good authority, whether mother or father, teacher or professor, pastor or elder, governor or president or judge. And those who refuse to turn to correction and rebuke and have a position of authority, are betraying their trust and harming their subjects by their destructive sentimentality and tenderness. I mean, we all know this, right? Haven't you listened to the news and you've heard, finally, that a judge doesn't simply pass sentence, but he says to the accused, I have not seen an ounce of remorse, and your crime is heinous. You do not deserve to live. And our, you know, our hearts and our breasts go, 
Yes, we may know nothing about the situation. In fact, usually we don't know anything about the situation. But it makes the news that a judge actually does rebuke. A judge actually does correct. A judge doesn't just do this impartial trip where the state assigns you this consequence of your actions. But he actually hammers the person trying to stir up in them what? A conscience and repentance. And this is the Apostle Paul. His tone is a godly tone, and it is a tone that every leader ought to be familiar with. And if we're not familiar with it, it's because we are destructively sentimental and tender, overly tender. All right? Number one, his tone. Number two, what is the basis or ground of Paul's argument? That's very interesting if you look at it. That Paul is here basing his argument not on his own life, and we've had a lot of that in the first two chapters of Galatians, and not on Old Testament doctrine. We've had a lot of that also in the first two chapters of Galatians. But here his argument is based on what? It's based on experience. Now, immediately, uh, people who are committed to doctrine, people who are committed to truth claims, people who are committed to logic and to words having meanings draw back and say, yeah, but you can't trust experience. And the truth is, without experience, you can't trust truth. The Bible presents always truth and experience completely locked together. And truth without experience, a good label to remember it in your brain, is dead orthodoxy. And it is mind-numbing and soul-chilling and body-killing. Uh, it is nothing, nothing nice. Well, what is experience without truth? Uh, I don't trust myself to describe that because that's generally not my problem. <laughs> but it's sickening. It's schlock. It's, it's, I won't describe it, but it's bad. Uh, and the church is always back and forth between experience and saying, you know, we've got to forget doctrine and, 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 and trust Jesus and, 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 and feel the Spirit, you know. And those who say, feelings can't be trusted. We have to know the truth, you know. And you've always got these two opposites fighting against each other. Truth claiming that experience is false and experience claiming that truth is, is secondary. But neither is true. They're both primary. They both must be locked together. All right? You have to have an experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter how much truth you know about Scripture. doesn't matter how well you're able to spit out proper doctrine from Scripture. You need it. But without the... Uh, without the soul-stirring, without the uh, illuminating, without the enlightening, without the inspiring, without the vivifying, right, which is a word that means to give it life, of the Holy Spirit, all the truth of Scripture is powerless to save you. Now, what is your experience? of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ. If the Apostle Paul were to write this argument to you, namely, did you receive the Spirit by the law or by believing the truth? How would you answer? 
Many of you would answer, I have never received the Spirit of God. I meant what I said. Many of you, if you were honest, would answer, I have never received the Spirit of God. Now, maybe you say, well, not many of us, just a few of us. All right, fine, a few of you. But clearly here in this sanctuary, as in every sanctuary where Christians have ever been gathered, there are those who know all the doctrine, who can spit it out in such a way that they'd make excellent Sunday school teachers if you could have Sunday school teachers who had never experienced the power of God. Clearly there are people here who have fooled the elders, have provided a believable confession of faith in Jesus Christ and experience of the vivifying power of the Holy Spirit, but have never experienced it. Clearly, there are those of you who intellectually know all the truths of the gospel, but have never fallen on your face before the living God and have clung to the the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And without that clinging, God is pleased not to work in your heart and not to give you the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Bible says God resists the proud. And until the moment where you despair of your own righteousness and throw it out in the trash, in the dung heap, as the Apostle Paul says, and cling solely to the cross of Christ and his blood, not until that moment is God pleased to overlook your sin because he sees you dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that righteousness comes to you, not by your works, but simply by throwing yourself prostrate before the living God and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that is the moment where God's pleased to give you the Spirit. And that Spirit is not a Spirit that simply gives you new birth in Jesus Christ, but that Spirit is a Spirit that gives you holiness of life. The first question that ought to be asked somebody who deals constantly with besetting sin is, have I ever known the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? Have I known the power of the Holy Spirit for conversion? Was there a time where I threw myself at God's mercy under the blood of Jesus Christ and received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Now note, I am not talking to you, and neither is the Apostle Paul, about some second blessing. I'm not saying that, you know, remember back to the time when you, having become a Christian, had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you came forward at a worship service, and you asked the Holy Spirit to indwell you, and then you spoke in tongues, and from that point on, you've been victorious. The Apostle Paul is absolutely against second blessings. Now, hear me out here. By second blessing, I mean the time at which you begin to live in power, the Christian life. All right? I am not opposing, and neither do the Scripture oppose, times where the Holy Spirit is given to us in power in special ways. But all through history, there's been a tendency, and it's here in the book of Galatians, all right, to separate Christians into two classes, a, a sort of you know, perfunctory kind of beginning kind of uh, bunny hill class, and then over here, those who have made it, you know, those who have broken through to the other side, as the doors would say, right? Okay? Break on through to the other side. Right? Okay? No. The Apostle Paul is absolutely opposing circumcision as a way of breaking through to the other side. Okay? You see that? 
The Apostle Paul would not say circumcision is going to break you through to the other side. He would not say that speaking in tongues is going to break you through to the other side. He would not say that going to a Keswick conference or to any of the conferences that the Childress's tape would break you through to the other side. He doesn't say that taking the class that Stephen is going to teach is going to break you through to the other side. He doesn't say that sitting under the preaching of the Word at Church of the Good Shepherd is going to break you through to the other side. No. Uh-uh. What the Bible says is that the Holy Spirit leads you through to the other side. The other side isn't here in this life. The other side is heaven. All right? And there is no breaking through except through the valley of the shadow of death or the rapture. All right? And so always our perpetual tendency is to say that uh, if we will uh, give ourselves intellectually to the truth, and work real hard that someday we'll, 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 we'll get it just right and, and, and everything will change and we'll become fully sanctified. We'll become the, 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 the real experts, the real holy ones, the, the real sanctified ones. The Apostle Paul says, hey, did you start based on works? Did you start giving yourself to the law? Did you start doing it yourself? Is that how it started? You know, it's very dangerous to make an argument where you ask a question that is subjective and where you don't know the response you're going to get. All right? If you're an attorney in a law court, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go and ask a witness a question you don't know the answer to. So here's the Apostle Paul at a pitch point of his argument, and he says, I just want to know one thing. You know, how did you start? Did you start with the grace of the Holy Spirit, or did you start by giving yourself to the law and finally making yourself okay for God? I just want to know that one thing. Now, on what basis does the Apostle Paul ask that question? The basis is the Apostle Paul knows the answer. Why does he know the answer? He knows the answer because he was sent by the Holy Spirit to the Christians in Galatia, and he preached the word, and he was there when they responded to the word, when they threw out their good works, they threw out their observation of the law, and they clung to the cross for salvation. And he was there when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them in response to believing in Jesus Christ. And so he could ask the question without any danger because he knew the answer they had to give. Yes, we despaired of our righteousness and that's how we became Christians. And so the the logic of it is, yes, you have to answer, you despaired of your own righteousness. Now look at me. Look at me. Are you going to continue by observing the law you started here you fools just tell me one thing starting here what you're going to you're going to bring yourself up to heaven now by your own works you see this is the logic of the thing and this is always the temptation of christians we can despair of our own righteousness and observing the law for the beginning but boy we think you know out of gratitude i have to now make myself holy and where did those little words make myself come from i have to observe the law If we started with the Spirit, what? We're going to continue in our own strength? It's an argument from experience. He's saying you experience the power of the Holy Spirit when you believe, not when you observe the law. Now, as you're being made ready for heaven, you're going to go back and exchange the Holy Spirit and His power and grace for the law? What are you going to do? The tone, it's harsh, but loving. The basis is experience, not doctrine, not his own history. And then finally, what is 
the third part of his talk to them. Well, the third part is, what is the occasion? And I just want to close by saying to you, the occasion is failure. Now, this should be obvious to you. The whole reason we have the book of Galatians is that the Galatian Christians completely failed. Otherwise, we would not have such tones. We would not have such arguments. And so what does that teach you? Well, it teaches you that it is the life of a Christian to repent. That's the first of the 95 theses that Luther nailed on the door. He said, when our Lord said, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish, he was teaching us that the life of pagans is a life of repentance. No, no, no. He says the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. It is the nature of the Christian life to fail. It is the nature of Christians to be deceived. It is the nature of Christians to need perpetually to repent. And every time we repent, we're again throwing ourselves at the mercy of God and asking for the Holy Spirit to cleanse us. So if you go to churches and you go to retreats where you're not challenged to repent, they're sub-biblical, they're sub-Christian. Because it is the life of a Christian to repent. Now, listen to Luther and what he says about this. Luther says... Since the devil has this uncanny ability to make us believe a lie until we would swear a thousand times it were the truth, we must not be proud but walk in fear and humility and call upon the Lord Jesus to save us from temptation. Although I am a doctor of divinity and have preached Christ and fought his battles for a long time, I know from personal experience how difficult it is to hold fast to the truth. Isn't that sweet? I cannot always shake off Satan. I cannot always apprehend Christ as the Scriptures portray Him. Sometimes the devil distorts Christ to my vision. But thanks be to God who keeps us in His Word, in faith, and in prayer. Now that's Martin Luther. So you're normal. You must repent. Let me close by reading from the Word. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not What does it say? Crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. 
For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Now listen to the conclusion. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The tone, intense, harsh even, and therefore loving. The ground, not doctrine, not doctrine here, but experience. The experience of the power of the Holy Spirit in response to our faith. And then finally, the situation. The situation is the failure, the sin, and the unbelief of the Christians in Galatia. Something we share with them. And so this text is an encouragement to us that we're normal. And in heaven is where we get the goodies. We get many here. But heaven is when God takes away from us all sin. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you have been pleased to humble us by making us subject to our sinful nature all of this life. We thank you for those who have gone before us and have described this life to us as that veil of tears. Father, we pray that you will help us to put our hope in Jesus Christ and not to turn away from him growing weary and well-doing, particularly the well-doing of repenting and being instructed and corrected and rebuked. Father, help us to love those authorities, mothers, fathers, teachers, elders, who rebuke us, and to take that rebuke as a special sign of their love and through them of your love. Father, help